It's December 1931, and a few blocks from Wall Street, two men are on the hunt. Their target is across the street, a loft candy store and a soda fountain. Whose turn is it to order? It's your turn. You take the notes, I'll fill the bottle. Sounds good. The men stride across the street and enter the store. The pair step up to the black marble soda fountain counter and place their order. Two Coca-Colas, please. Drinks ordered. The men grab two seats near the back. One pulls out a detective notepad from his pocket. He scribbles down the date and the time. Then he spots the soda jerk heading towards them with their colas. He flips his notepad shut. After the soda jerk leaves, the man reopens his notepad and finishes his notes. As he does so, his companion takes a small vial and discreetly pours some of his cola into the container. You got the sample? Yep, good to go. The pair get up and head for the exit, but just as they reach the door, the soda jerk notices they barely touch their drinks. Excuse me, gentlemen, is something wrong with your Pepsi Colas? The man with the notepad smirks. Nah, nothing at all. And with that, the pair are gone. The soda jerk doesn't know it yet, but he's just been stung. Stung by two of the Coca-Cola Company's clandestine army of cola cops. Posing as customers, these investigators roam the country rooting out knockoff colas and gathering the evidence needed to sue them out of existence. The entire soda industry lives in fear of them. In their first decade of operation, they kill off thousands of Coca-Cola imitators. Three months later, in March 1932, a courier arrives at the Loft Candy Factory in Long Island City carrying a large brown package. It's addressed to Charles Guth, the president of Loft Candy and the owner of the Pepsi-Cola Company. The receptionist directs the courier to an office at the far end of the factory. The courier breathes in the delicious aroma of warm chocolate as he walks through the facility. He passes rows of workers packing boxes with candies, treats that will soon be on sale in Loft's 200-plus New York stores. Eventually, the courier reaches Guth's office. Enter. The office is set up sort of like a courtroom. Guth sits behind a large desk on a raised platform. Guth's barely five foot six, but from his elevated position, he looks imposing. And that's just how Guth likes it. Guth wants people to look up to him and to be able to look down on them. Standing on tiptoes, the courier passes the package to Guth. Mr. Guth, you have just been served. Guth doesn't even flinch. He knew this day was coming. The day when Coca-Cola's lawyers would come after Pepsi. Guth lazily shoes the courier away with a wave of his hand and tears open the package. On page after page, he sees details of the times when Loft soda jerks served Coca-Cola's cola cops Pepsi instead of the Coca-Cola they asked for. But Guth doesn't care. Coca-Cola might think it's got him on the ropes, but Guth's no fool. He's already one step ahead of Coca-Cola.
Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. You're listening to the second installment in our Coca-Cola versus Pepsi series, The Candy Monster. In our last episode, Coca-Cola became America's favorite cola. Its success drew hundreds of imitators, including a cola from North Carolina called Pepsi. Then, in 1920, a spike in the price of sugar causes Pepsi and Coke's other copycats to go bankrupt. With its rivals bust and broken, Coca-Cola quickly dominates the soda business. But Coca-Cola wouldn't have the market to itself for long. The Loft family can't believe their luck. It's July 1929, and in front of them is Charles Guth, the millionaire behind the popular Mavis chocolate drink. On the table, a contract that could save their ailing chain of candy stores and soda fountains. The contract will give them a controlling stake in Guth's business. In return, Guth gets a minority share in Loft Candy and a seat on the board. Guth seems like a respectable guy. He's charming, clever, and stylish. His tailored suit, bowler hat, spats, and the fat diamond ring on his hand, all of this says successful tycoon. There's a whiff of not chocolate. What is that? Yes, the family smells money in the air. The Loft family signs the contract. Afterwards, there are smiles and handshakes all around. But if the family had bothered to dig into Guth's past, they might have thought twice about signing that contract. Maybe they would have learned how Guth built his Mavis empire by bribing bottling plants to break their contracts with Coca-Cola to produce his chocolate drink. Unfortunately, the Law family never looked beyond the facade of the impeccably dressed millionaire, throwing them a lifeline. And it didn't take them long to realize their mistake either. Guth quickly turns other stockholders against the family and seizes control of their business. Now, 
He's in charge of Loft Candy. Guth goes hunting for ways to cut costs. He soon finds one. With more than 200 stores and soda fountains across New York, Loft buys a lot of Coca-Cola syrup. Thousands of gallons of this stuff every month. Guth figures his company deserves a discount. So, in May of 1931, Guth calls the Coca-Cola Company's sales department in Atlanta to demand one. But it doesn't go well. I'm sorry, Mr. Guth. It's a company policy not to give discounts. At the Coca-Cola Company, we treat all our customers equally, whether they are mom-and-pop stores or, or loft candy. I don't care about your policy. I demand a discount. Look, if you don't give me one, we'll stop selling Coca-Cola in our soda fountains. Mr. Guth, threats will not change our policy. You have to understand something. If you want to deprive your customers of the nation's favorite drink, you go right ahead. You'll regret this. You will regret this. Guth already has a backup plan. He's going to replace Coca-Cola in his soda fountains with Pepsi. Now, you remember how the original Pepsi-Cola went bust in March of 1923? Well, soon after, a Wall Street financier bought the rights to Pepsi with dreams of taking on Coca-Cola. He failed. And in May of 1931, Pepsi-Cola went bust again. For Guth, Pepsi's second collapse could not have been better timed. He snaps up the rights to Pepsi on the cheap. This, only days after Coca-Cola's rebuff. So he's feeling quite pleased with himself as he gets ready to remove Coca-Cola from Loft stores. But first, Guth wants a new recipe. He might have bought the business, but the truth is Guth can't stomach Pepsi. And so he summons Loft's chemists to his office. Look, if we're gonna sell this stuff, it's gotta taste a whole lot better. That's what I want you to do. I want you to make it better. I want you to make it sweeter. The chemists return to the lab and rework the Pepsi recipe. They introduce caffeine to the cola that once prided itself on being drug-free. And then they sweeten the drink with extra sugar. Guth dismisses them each time, complaining, it's still not sweet enough. After weeks of this back and forth, the chemists hatch a plan. They make a new recipe with a little more sugar and take it to Guth. But Guth rejects it again. A few hours later, the chemists return with another Pepsi. Guth is just about to try the latest batch when one of the chemists speaks up. I must warn you that, in our opinion, this one's undrinkable, sir. It's just far too sweet. Guth sips the drink and glares down at the chemist with cold, steely eyes from his elevated desk. Nonsense. This is about right. Too sweet? You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> this is why I run the company and you chumps work for me. What Guth doesn't know is that the Pepsi formula he's just approved is the exact same one he rejected a few hours earlier. New formula ready, Guth orders Loft's soda fountains to throw their Coca-Cola in the trash and start selling Pepsi. Now, of course, Guth knows what's going to happen now. The Coca-Cola company will send its squad of cola cops to New York City. 
They'll spend weeks swarming over his stores, trying to catch his soda jerk serving Pepsi when a Coca-Cola is requested. Day by day, they will collect evidence of trademark infringement, and then they will try to kill Pepsi in court. So, Guth prepares his defenses. He issues strict instructions to his soda jerks, telling them to never give Pepsi to customers who ask for a Coca-Cola. He also offers a large reward to anyone who gets a Pepsi when they ask for a Coca-Cola at a loft soda fountain. But inevitably, there are slip-ups, and Coca-Cola's investigators are there to record them. But when Coca-Cola hauls Pepsi into court for these infringements, Guth's preparations pay off. After hearing the case, the judge delivers a verdict that shocks Coca-Cola. While Loft did substitute Pepsi for Coca-Cola, it is clear to me that Guth did everything he could to stop this from happening. Therefore, I am striking this case. Coca-Cola should have just told Loft about the problem instead of going to court. But Guth's courtroom victory does little to lift Pepsi's dismal sales. Loft's customers are snubbing Pepsi. They want Coca-Cola, not some knockoff they've never heard of. By late 1933, it's looking like Pepsi will go bust again. But then, Guth has a light bulb moment. Since soda is mainly water and water's dirt cheap, he will sell his 12-ounce Pepsi bottles for the same nickel price as a 6-ounce bottle of Coca-Cola. Twice as much for a nickel. That's the perfect pitch for Depression-era America. Sales of Pepsi surge. The company can barely keep up with demand as cash-strapped families switch to Pepsi. Annual profits soar past the $2 million mark, then $3 million, then $4 million. After years of struggle and dashed hopes, Pepsi is back. But as Pepsi thrives, Loft withers. By October of 1935, Loft candy is barely breaking even. Guth's solution is to walk away. He only cares about Pepsi now. The Loft family's joy at regaining control of the company is short-lived. Guth has left them with a business on its knees, so they trawl through the accounts, searching for a way to save Loft. And that's when they spot something unusual. It turns out Guth used Loft's money to buy Pepsi-Cola, but rather than assigning ownership of Pepsi to Loft, Guth kept the shares for himself. It should be Loft, not Guth, who owns Pepsi. But with the company's finances in tatters, Loft's directors can't afford to sue for control of Pepsi. So, they do the next best thing. They ask Walter Mack for help. An energetic New Yorker with slick back black hair, Mack makes his living from failing companies. He finds struggling businesses, invests in them, turns them around, and then sells them for a tidy profit. It's a good business. It's made Mack rich. In fact, very rich. 
Mac hears out the Loft family's pleas for help and agrees to invest in Loft. He'll also bankroll the legal action needed to wrest Pepsi from Guth's clutches. The case drags on for months, but in September 1938, Mac and Guth encounter each other for the first time across a Delaware courtroom to hear the judge's decision on Pepsi's future. The judge is more than ready to close this chapter. This has been a long and tedious case, but it's clear that Mr. Guth used Loft's money, personnel, and facilities to buy and develop the Pepsi-Cola company. Now, without Loft's resources, Pepsi's success wouldn't have been possible. Therefore, Mr. Guth must give his shares in Pepsi to Loft. Smiles break out among the Loft team, but then Guth's lawyer springs to his feet. We wish to appeal. The judge sighs and renders a surprisingly Solomon-like solution. Granted, until the appeals court makes its decision, both parties will run Pepsi-Cola together. Mr. Guth will be the general manager and Loft, Loft will choose someone to be the president. Loft nominates Mac. And as the judge sets out the terms of the arrangement, Mac and Guth eye each other warily. They're probably thinking the exact same thing. This is going to be a marriage made in hell. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. October 1938. Walter Mack's chauffeur-driven black Cadillac pulls into the Pepsi plant in Long Island City. It's Mack's first day as president of the Pepsi-Cola company. And he's never even been to the company's plant on the East River before. As he steps out of the car, Mack marvels at the buzzing facility. He watches the trucks being loaded up with barrels of Pepsi syrup. He sees the workers unloading sacks of sugar from a Cuban ship docked in the plant's harbor. In the skies above, 
he sees curls of smoke rising out of the facility's tall brick chimney. And then Mac spots Charles Guth himself. He's standing by the main entrance with his arms folded and a scowl on his face. Mac heads toward Guth, hand outstretched. Guth keeps his arms folded. About time you showed up. I'll show you to your office. In silence, Guth leads Mac through the vast premises. Eventually, they arrive in a quiet corner of the factory. That's your secretary. That's your office. Enjoy it. And with that, Guth walks off. Mac shrugs off the chilly welcome. He walks past the secretary, opens the door, and inside is a tiny windowless office. He squeezes his way into the room, shuffling between the desk and wall to reach his chair. He sits down, and then he notices the desk is bare, not a pen or sheet of paper in sight. In fact, there's no stationery at all. Mac feels a bead of sweat trickle down his back. It's really hot in here, he thinks. Mac gets up and shuffles out of the room to talk to his secretary. I don't have any stationery. Yes, that's right. Uh, sorry? Mr. Guth says the court did not require the company to provide you with stationery, so we are under strict orders not to give you any. I'm very sorry about that, but we might get fired if we disobey. Okay, all right. I'll get my own. Also, my office is really hot. Is it always like that? Oh, yes. It's right above the boiler for the entire facility. Fine, Mac thinks. Have it your way. After buying stationery from a nearby store, Mac returns to his cubbyhole office. He sits down, but then... He feels the call of nature coming on, and so he gets up, squeezes his way out of the office once more, and goes over to his secretary. Could you tell me where the restroom is? The secretary gives directions, Mac heads off, and a couple of minutes later, he's back. Uh, the restroom's locked up. Do you have a key? Mr. Guth has that. I'm afraid you have to ask him if you want to use the restroom. Ah, screw that. Mac grabs his coat and storms out of the plant. He finds a nearby diner that will now double as his restroom. In the months that follow, Mac and Guth fight like cats and dogs. Of course, Guth is well aware his appeal might fail. So, when he isn't making Mac's life hell, he's busy working on an escape plan. As 1938 draws to a close, he sends his son-in-law to Montreal to buy the rights to a little-known Canadian soda called Noxicola. Guth's plan is simple. If he loses control of Pepsi, he'll immediately start a business war with him using Noxicola. One by one, he moves his loyal lieutenants from Pepsi to his secret new business a few blocks away. They lay out plans to get Pepsi's independent bottlers to defect to Noxicola. Now at first, Mac and the Loft faction within Pepsi don't suspect a thing. But as more and more of Guth's sidekicks vanish from Pepsi's corridors, they get suspicious. 
Loft hires a private investigator who soon discovers Guth's secret Noxicola plant. Armed with this evidence, the Loft family has Guth cornered. In April of 1939, the appeal court judge orders Guth to hand over his stake in Pepsi. Game, set, match. Loft. With Guth gone, Mac's first priority is to improve Pepsi's advertising. Other cola makers are copying Pepsi's twice as much for a nickel strategy. Mac knows that Pepsi will only survive if it embeds its brand in the public's mind fast. But Pepsi's advertising budget is tiny, especially compared to the huge amounts being spent by Coca-Cola. So Mac needs to find cheap ways to make a big impact and fast. In 1939, he hires an aviator to start writing the words Pepsi-Cola in the skies above major U.S. cities. With skywriting still a novelty, the appearance of smoky Pepsi-Cola logos in the heavens captures a whole lot of attention. One startled woman even calls Pepsi-Cola. I thought you should know God has just written the name of your drink in the sky. Around the same time as Pepsi-Cola's first skywriting sorties began, two men arrive unexpectedly at the plant and ask to see Mac. Mac's secretary eyes them warily. They are a strange-looking pair indeed, dressed in matching white shoes and open shirts. Who are these guys? And they've got a gramophone with them. After getting the all-clear from Mac, the secretary sends them in. Good to meet you, Mr. Mac. We're musicians, and we've written a song for Pepsi that we would like to play for you. Uh, okay, go ahead. Sounds interesting. Well, Mac loves it. Radio is the big new medium of the day. He's got to convince stations to run this snappy little ditty. But every leading station refuses to play Pepsi's song. Eventually, he finds a down-on-its-luck station in New Jersey that's desperate enough to air one of the world's first radio advertising jingles. Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 12 full ounces, that's a lot. As soon as it hits the airwaves, Pepsi sales in New Jersey pop. The big stations that once refused to air Pepsi's song now beg to put it on the air. Listeners are calling radio stations and asking them to play it again. Some stations are even playing the song without asking Pepsi to pay a dime. And every time the tune hits the air, Pepsi sales rise again. By late 1941, even the usually aloof Coca-Cola can't ignore its upstart New York Cola Challenger. For the first time in years, Coca-Cola has a real rival on its hands. Things are looking real good for Pepsi. But then, shocking news comes in from Hawaii. America is now at war. And that 
will play right into Coca-Cola's hands. On the next episode of Pepsi vs. Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola joins the Army and heads to the front lines of World War II. Meanwhile, Pepsi fights for survival on the home front. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever fine podcasts are served. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at Wondery.com survey and tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. And a quick note about the conversations you've been hearing on Business Wars. We can't know exactly what's said, obviously, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. He's the author of Fizz, How Soda Shook Up the World. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Jenny Lauer is our producer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Marsha Louie is the executive producer. Business Wars was created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering. Hi, I'm Brooke. And I'm Arisha. And we're the hosts of Even the Rich. So I want you to imagine you're about to go on stage and perform in front of 30,000 cheering fans. You pop a cough drop, take some deep breaths, tell yourself, you can do this. And that's when your brother steps into your dressing room. He tells you the police are here. Either you clean up your act or you'll get arrested. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But you just laugh and say, good, because the you in this story is Madonna. You're going to give the police a moment they'll never forget. Ooh, so what happens next? If you want to find out, you'll have to listen to the newest season of Even the Rich, The Making of Madonna. Follow on Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.